musical linguistic Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And we're now into the final 10 days of our annual fun drive, and thanks to a bunch of fellow saloners who have made donations during the past week, we are now funded through this coming October. And in addition to the fine people who have made donations to the salon, I also want to thank Tommy B., George R., Kyle H., Shuttermon, and Michael for posting a review about my novel, The Genesis Generation, on Amazon. Those uh, reviews actually uh, help uh, almost as much as purchases, so uh, thank you very much. Also, uh, with summer coming soon, if you're planning on traveling, then I'd like to recommend that you buy a copy of my book to carry with you. Now, it's a big book, so I apologize if it's a little heavier than you'd like, but the cover has a painting of an ayahuasca circle that was done by my friend Jared Johnson. Uh, The only text above it reads, The Genesis Generation, a psychedelic novel. And other than my name, that's all that's on the cover. So my hope is that if you have it with you during your travels this summer, well, somebody is bound to ask you about it, and who knows? uh, That may be how you begin to find the others. Okay, that's enough of a commercial. (laughs) If you want to learn more about our fun drive, the information is in the uh, short 15-minute podcast, number 438. But for now, let's get back to this June of 1994 Terrence McKenna workshop that uh, we've been kind of winding our way through these past few weeks. Now, in about 21 minutes from now, you're going to hear Terrence talk about what it would be like to have your whole life digitally recorded. (laughs) And I'm sure that I don't have to tell you uh, to think about how much this dystopian vision of his has actually become true with uh, Facebook and all the rest. It's really interesting, uh, at least to me, how Terrence seems to have had a feeling for the situation we find ourselves in today, and yet this was almost 21 years ago that he gave this talk. It's probably good that we were trapped into reading that passage, because I don't know how many of you are astonished by what you heard. There's a lot going on there, including a fair amount of megalomania. Uh, because, you know, this man has bent many lives to his agenda, which he alone can understand the logic of. Uh, I mean, he wants to hunt this thing unto death because it has become for him uh, the symbol of a principle. That inscrutable thing is what I chiefly hate, he tells Starbuck. And I see it I I see Ahab as another reincarnation of Faust, another picture of a human being who seeks to go beyond what is humanly possible. And by rising up into that Promethean domain, sets themselves up for Greek fate to work its will with them. And if you know the book, you certainly know that this is what happens. Um... So that's enough of that. Does this all tie together? Do you see the logic in it? I was thinking to myself today, my whole life um, has been, uh, my whole public life has been about communication. And uh, ultimately, 
what I perceive, well, to quote Herman Melville from the same chapter, but a part I didn't read, reality outruns apprehension. Reality outruns apprehension. It means it's stranger than we can suppose. And so I'm, I'm at, at the late age of 47, beginning a kind of flirtation with the cryptic, because somehow direct, direct uh, naming of the thing doesn't work. The striking through the pasteboard mask to the reality below requires a stratagem. It requires stealth. It, uh, uh, yes. Well, because what we're trying to do is say the unsayable. Yeah, Wittgenstein said, you know, beyond what can be known lies the realm of the unspeakable, in the face of which the proper response is silence. But, you know, uh, the only thing that cannot be said about the unspeakable is its true essence. And the rest can be downloaded into poetic metaphor. But we're trying to here to actually get to the very heart of what it is to be who we are, to be suspended in time. You know, our own personal lives are far more dramatic than history. I mean, you may live in an age of great wealth and stability and uh, civil order, and yet still die like a dog of some disease. And, uh, and that adventure for you will overshadow your place in history. Uh, the 20th century has been very chaotic. We are asked to make sense of a great deal, you know, from Marcel Proust to the Third Reich to Jackson Pollock to the moon flights, uh, all of this stuff. And... We, in a sense, we must make the effort to cognize what is happening because we have participated in its creation. And, and yet, as I said, you know, it's a continuous effort at education, trying to get at the unspeakable. One of the reasons I'm so fond of, of psychedelics is because they transcend rhetoric, you know, it's a, it, it's a, uh, not an argument for a point of view. It's an experience which arises in the soma and, uh, and therefore it has an existential validity that can't be denied. Yeah. I'm interested in it, whether you've used other shamanic techniques and what your experience with them as well to psychedelics. Well, I've used breathing techniques um, I, uh, my experience is that, that they are uh, at best very difficult to make work. Uh, I get a lot of flack for this, but what I'm interested in is so radical a transformation of human experience that it, I don't see how it could come by any other means, nor would I personally wish it to. I mean, people say, wouldn't it be great if you could achieve these states on the Natch? If I woke up achieving these states on the Natch, I would immediately define myself as with a severe medical problem that needed addressing. 
these are highly, we're not talking meditation here. Did you experience the DMT state in a dream? Yes, but it, it was brief. It was as brief as DMT really is. Uh, I, uh, I, I don't, it troubles me to have to be so negative about all these other ways of doing things. You know, the generous and liberal and progressive impulse is to say everybody has a piece of the action. The Jews have the Kabbalah, the Vajrayanists have their yantras, the, somebody else has something else. The, the impulse is to be generous. The mushroom, which feels no obligation to political correctness, says something completely different. It says nobody has a clue. It's, it's just wrong, all this stuff, all of it. The stuff we don't like, the stuff we do like. Uh, why this should be so, I don't know, except that we're so far away from the original wellsprings of inspiration. Uh, we, we want this boundary-dissolving experience. Now, maybe in the past, when diets were simpler and when people were simpler, uh, it, it, it was easier to achieve. Uh, I mean, I, as a child was very satisfied with things like butterfly wings, opals, polished agates. Uh, I could just, uh, pyrites, trilobites, I, I could just fall into these things and lose myself for hours in it. But as I grew more sophisticated, uh, these things lost their hold over me. And... Uh, we are the most sophisticated and hence the most jaded people who have ever existed. That's why it's amazing that DMT works so well, that we can be reduced to the status of, of basically newborn infants. Uh, but meditation and all these other things I take to be co-options organized by beastly hordes of priests or something. I'll tell you what I'm thinking of and I'm interested to know what you think there's any value to this. Um, obviously psychedelics for any individual are bound to dissolving. Um, but there are a lot of people I think that are afraid of that. And I'm wondering if sort of on a small community level whether things like dancing um, or other kinds of group exercises whether it's chanting or that kind of thing which seem to me to be boundary dissolving, at least among the people that are participating in it. How many values sort of a half step? Well, I, my advocate for the great half step is travel. That's why we call it taking a trip. Because, you know, travel, and the further you go and the closer to the ground you stay, the more mind-bending it is. I mean, if you were to leave this afternoon and drive to San Francisco airport and fly to Bangkok and go up country to Burma for two weeks and take no money and just hang out with your return air ticket and then fly back here, you might arrive back at Esalen and say, I've been in Burma for two weeks. And, and your co-workers might say, oh, we didn't realize you'd gone. But into that experience, you could have packed, you know, 
an enormous amount of change and self-reflection and adventure. I mean, you could have had love affairs, religious conversions, episodes of gastric poisoning, uh, all three and more. Uh, so I think people should travel. I think nomadism is a, a great thing, and hopefully part of the future will be a kind of growing nomadism. It's fascinating to me that you can carry a little computer and plug in to any telephone line and have your office snap into existence, uh, waiting messages, who needs calls, you know. And, and uh, so it's possible to move around. I think we're much more comfortable as nomads. I think an incredible stultification accompanied the invention of agriculture and that agriculturalists are just the most boring people. I mean, they suppressed orgy. They like to get up and work hard and they work hard. That seems to be their main uh, consideration. Travel is sort of a personal trip just like psychedelics are a personal trip. And I guess the last part of this is I wonder if there's any, whether you can take it as can't, I guess, take it as far as a psychedelic trip. Do you think there's any value to try to have a shared experience with groups of people moving to... You mean communities? Yes, a communal kind of, whether it's a whole, you know, I mean, a town or whatever, or a group of 20 people or whatever. Do you think that that's, there's any value to the shared experience? I don't know. I can get about as far as using sexuality as a platform for self-exploration, which involves one or two other people, depending on how loose you are. Community, I guess I am naturally a kind of a loner and highly suspicious. Uh, uh, It seems to me it's a huge distraction, all that. I've known people who've given their lives to community and in candid moments they express enormous bitterness. I mean, I won't name this person, but I've never forgotten. I once was with one of the great communards, a name you would all recognize, and we walked up above the community that she had helped build build, and... uh, you know, here was this vista of buildings and water collection supplies and gardens and so forth. And she turned to me and she said, you know what I think about community? And I said, what? And she said, I think it sucks. (laughs) And I was shocked. I mean, I was there to be converted. I was thinking, gee, look at how beautiful this is. And I live alone with my moldering books and my cat. And wouldn't it be nice to uh, thus and so? But... Uh, I think uh, we're very far... How can we do it? You know, the way to do it is to have a lot of psilocybin, no economic responsibilities, because the last time we were in that space, they hadn't been invented yet. A lot of group sex, and how can you do that in a world of epidemic, fatal, sexually transmitted diseases? Well, you are a progressive, aren't you? (laughs) It's coming. The the subject of teledildonics was raised. Uh, Teledildonics is a word that 
Howard Rheingold invented, and he's been taken to lunch more times for inventing this one word. Uh, Well, this is coming. Uh, I don't know what I think about him. You have to understand, when you get into these areas, you're talking to an Irish Catholic, and we get real reluctant when it comes to having sex with small household appliances. Uh, (laughs) Nevertheless, yes. Oh, brain machines. Brain machines are are like flying machines. We're going to have to have a lot of them that don't work before we get one that does. And and I wish all those people good luck. And everybody says the same thing about brain machines, which is it sure helps if you've got some good pot to smoke, which essentially <laughs> blows the brain machine away because, you know, if if you have good pot to smoke, who in the world? I mean, I don't, I don't like them very much. Uh, they range, however, from very simple ones to very, very complex ones. This is quite a thing in Europe. It isn't such a deal here. Uh, I saw a wonderful one recently that uses the sun. You keep your eyes closed, and it has a small little tube. You blow into it, and the harder you blow, the faster it spins, and it's. Uh, well, I think that's that's the very best one, and it's three dollars. Yeah, or three thousand. What I love about that, since you mentioned it, is that that little object. There is nothing really. It's made of molded plastic, but there's nothing high tech about it. You could have made one fifteen thousand years ago, and what you do is you hold it up to the sun. And this thing is like a propeller is splitting the light and the speed of the propeller is controlled by your breath through a tube. So you have a physiological feedback loop. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. And it could have existed any time in the last 20,000 years but was made in the 80s sometime. Uh, yeah. We haven't talked a great deal about sexuality and how, where, what we're going to do with all that in the electronic dispensation to come. Uh, I assume that leaving your body doesn't mean leaving the impression of your body behind, and that the body may become sort of like a, a phantom limb phenomenon. You know, you don't have one, but you can feel it anyway, kind of thing. Uh, and certainly, uh, you know, handshakes among phantom limbs don't transmit very many viral diseases. Uh, I, I don't think the Irish Catholics will lead the frontal assault on developing teledildonics. We'll leave that to... Uh, uh, some other subset of society. But this is coming. This is all absolutely coming. In fact, uh, long-distance sexual encounters between people. I mean, you only have to look... Like, like, for instance, take phone sex, for example. If you were to describe this to someone in 1950, they would think that you, you didn't understand human psychology and that such a preposterous thing would never fly. It's a $9 billion industry in the United States.
apparently, then, what this means is, though we may uh, tisk and toss our heads in good Calvinistic disapproval, uh, it, it's coming, and a, a lot of people want it. And uh, teledildonics will naturally accompany telepresence. Right now, they are not developing, but preparing to ship uh, a suit, a spandex suit, with all kinds of little flexors built in, inch by inch by inch, so that when you reach for a round object in the virtual reality, the flexors are activated and your finger, you, you learn to relax and then you can actually feel your hand close over this smooth, shiny object. It doesn't exist except in electronic virtual space. But, uh, and we don't have to, I don't think a lot of stress has to be placed on electronic duplication of, of tactility. We are so visually cued that a virtual reality that only satisfies your visual senses is is pretty astonishing. Uh, and, of course, these things are trivial these days. But, again, when you put in the asymptotic curve of developing technology, they are very quickly going to become very impressive. We need to break through in computational speed of an order of magnitude. And then these things won't be choppy cartoons anymore. They'll be things you can step off into and walk around. The obviously, in that process, the design goal should be a virtual reality where you are forced to exclaim, I can't tell if it's five, if 15 milligrams of psilocybin or Sony, because the, the, dupe, the, the hallucinations will become the furniture of VR. We're not going to just simply recreate Newtonian space in there. We don't have to. We can create any kind of an environment we can imagine. I, I think when the television was first invented, the general consensus was there goes the intellect of the poets. And then along comes uh, Lawnmower Man, you've seen, uh, which is sort of the opposite direction that the electronic contraptions of our current era offer uh, a heightened and uh, improved intellect. Well, I think the real uses of these things, that the proper use for virtual reality technology is to turn our minds inside out, to build soulscapes. I mean, we are all, you know, primates of a certain species. We dress differently, we color our hair, we do this and that, but we're all pretty much alike. Where we differ is in the mind. And if as one now learns to talk, in the future children were to begin to build their realities and nothing was ever erased and everything was always kept, well then by the time you were 20 years old, you'd have a virtual reality the size of Manhattan in virtual space and that would be who you truly are your fears, your hopes, your fantasies, your triumphs, your failures. And if you truly wanted to be intimate with someone, you wouldn't invite them up to your apartment to look at your etchings or listen to your stereo. You would invite them into 
your reality, your secret playhouse. And there would be levels. You wouldn't let just anyone go in all the way. And there would be things you shared with your friends, things you shared with your lovers, and things you shared with nobody, presumably. And these virtual realities, once created, will last forever in the same way that a, a, a mollusk makes a, a nascent shell that it leaves as its legacy in nature. So in a sense, the past will cease to exist. Uh, people who grow up in that kind of an environment will leave an electronic record of themselves so virtually complete that it will be as though they have come into existence forever. Not from their point of view, of course. From their point of view, they eventually go into the yawning grave. But from the point of view of all the rest of us, once they come into existence, their virtual reality will be there to explore forever. I have a videotape of my son's birth. And I sort of wondered, you know, if you wrote a videotape of my own birth, then life, you know, it wasn't possible for me to have such a... Well, your son, I... I'm sure will someday ask you for that videotape to incorporate into his ever-growing museum about himself. Yes. When you speak of our minds differing, is it not how we've accessed what's in there? I mean, the difference is how close we are to what is available an availability that I'm not sure we know the boundaries of. Isn't, isn't that it? Isn't that it? Well, it has to do with the path that we've each taken through the data stream. I mean, one of the most uncool things you can say to another human being is, could you explain to me what it is I just said? <laughs> Because that shatters the illusion that we're all trying to maintain, which is, you understand me, I understand you, we agree, you know, Woody Allen is funny, Hitler isn't, uh, so forth and so on. But if you start asking, then you asked for it, and you hear that, you know, they think Hitler is funny, and Woody Allen isn't funny. And so we are held together by our expressed assumptions. And this is tricky. I, I get this all the time because often I give talks like this and then they're turned over to a, a, a professional typist who transcribes them. And so I get to see what somebody thinks I'm saying and they type it out. And sometimes there are sentence-long malapropisms where every word has been slightly tweaked to give a, a completely different word, you know, instead of going upstairs, apples and oranges. Uh, these are called mandragadans or something like that. But uh, communicating is a big problem. That's why we need art, and that's why I think this electronic thing is going to turn out to be very boundary-dissolving, more than we realize. I mean, we not only are going to become our art, I will become my art. I may end up becoming your art as well. Yes, and I, and I understand that. I understand that. Um, but when you go out, when, when you take suicide, for example, what you're doing is going in. Where are you going if you're going out? 
I know I'm using words, but that's what we have to work with right now. Well, I think, you know, the great cliché of the New Age is that there's no difference between the inside and the outside. And they will maintain that vehemently until you whip out psychedelic substances. And then suddenly this distinction, which was previously denied to have any importance, becomes very, very important. And people say, well, can't you do it naturally? say, well, what do you mean? This came from a plant. And you say, no, no, I mean, can't you do it without any help from the outside? You say, well, I thought you just said the inside and the outside were the same thing. Well, yes, but in this particular case, somehow great stress is laid on doing it from the inside out. Are you awakening something that is inside by taking it? Not, I think, in, I, I think that you can semantically argue about this, mm-hmm. but to try and communicate with someone who isn't just interested in verbal somersaults, mm-hmm. the answer is no. The thing you're contacting is not yourself. I mean, think of the word self. By definition, the self is that which is most familiar, most well-known. Well, if you then have an experience that is utterly terrifying, completely alien, and beyond anything you ever conceived of, to call it the self is to do some kind of weird injustice to the meaning. The answer, where I'm coming from, I'm sure you know where I'm coming from on this, but the, the sense of, in Zen, for example, that all things are in there. It's just a question of finding We all have all of this. Yeah, I would agree with that, as long as you add that all things are out here as well. I will. Yeah, that's it. I'm happy to do that. The the inside-outside distinction is just... There's just stuff. And when you start going, traveling, making this trip, you are feeling that you're going <laughs> inside us. It's it's well. It's in, it's the curiosity is that John Crowley, an American novelist, who some of you, if you haven't read him, he wrote a wonderful book called Little Big, and in that book he says, "The further in you go, the bigger it gets." And, and that is literally true. And that means that the distinction between building a starship and going to Andromeda in it and going into your mind is, is simply a, a, a problem of a lower dimensional way of slicing the information. That's my faith, that the imagination is where we're going to live you know, and this is the last thing I'll say, but this, this is new to me and very interesting. What has been secured recently in quantum physics is that non-locality, a la Bell's theorem, is real. It isn't a, a peculiar iridescence on the theory. It's real. It's just real, and you can do experiments to prove that it's real. Well, now... What's interesting about that is that it shows that information is non-local. 
information is non-local. But what's important is to realize that matter is simply a form of information. Matter is a form of information. It's the kind of information that comes bound to energy. And so if information is non-local, and if matter is a subset of information, then matter too, in some sense, is non-local. And what that means is you don't need starships to go to Zanebulganubi. You can walk there from here if you know the way. If you know the way. And what we're trying to find out is the way. Because we're locked inside Newtonian physics, which says you know, you're on a drop of solid matter whirling around a star. The only way to get to another drop of matter around another star is to submit yourself to the uh, exertions of Newtonian mechanics and fly a ship there. But if, in fact, at the quantum mechanical level, information is non-local, then I believe that what we call the imagination, and especially the psychedelic or the dreaming imagination, is just the random roving and scanning of the mind at rest through the universal data field, and that everything we see in these states is ontologically real. It's as real as we are. And what you see that you can't understand, you neither remember nor cling to, because it is unspeakable and beyond rational apprehension. But what is just at the edge of rational apprehendability, we retain as the visionary experience and the compass of our life's quest. And a technology of the imagination is what we're talking about here. A technology that lets us go into the imagination. I remember being told literally at my mother's breast, if wishes were horses, beggars would ride. And that's what we're looking for here. We're looking for a world where wishes are horses and beggars do ride. And it requires a flip in language, a flip in perception, and uh, through technology, shamanically directed and, and aesthetically critiqued and inspired, I think we will go to it. I think Plato was right. The good and the true are the beautiful. And that beauty, simply the pursuit of beauty with no moral hand-wringing about it, is a sufficiently stable setting of life's compass that it will carry you into paradise. The good, the true, and the beautiful are facets of the same transcendental object. And it is our destiny to mirror it, to anticipate it, and in our individual and collective death and transfiguration to become uh, part of it. Yeah. Are you talking about the intricate universe then? By implication, yes. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's late in the day to take all that on, but it is very interesting that David Bohm, who was thought to be a kind of a garrulous 
crank by straight physicists for years and years, it is now being understood that we're on the brink of a, of a retroactive revolution in physics. We, David Bohm has a better theory of the quanta than the Copenhagen school. And his theory gives the same level of predictive refinement that the Copenhagen model gives. What it does that the Copenhagen model doesn't do is it allows for non-locality. What it gets rid of that the Copenhagen school was never able to swallow or spit out and which hatched some of the most turgid scientific prose ever written in the history of science, is it gets rid of the damned uncertainty principle and all the arm-waving and mystic hoopla that went with that. It turns out that was what a child might have supposed it to be, a, a, a product of messy thinking. And if we're willing to accept non-locality, then Bohm's physics will probably triumph over the kind of quantum physics that's been in place for 70 years. That's very exciting because he secures the idea of an implicate order and a holographic universe and a progressive revealing of a, of a plenum, all things near and dear to the discussion at hand. Yeah. There's one silly thought that's bothering me about uh, the back at uh, the uh, uh, when you were describing the three stages of, of taking the psilocybin, and particularly uh-huh. from the point of view of uh, the, the early sentinel eight, um, that uh, when they the first two stages seem to have some obvious uh, uh, survival benefit. Yeah, acuity, uh-huh. uh-huh. etc. The third stage seems to have an obvious survival negative. If they're laying flat on their back by the campfire, uh, easy prey, easy prey, and if everybody did it, uh, uh, well, nobody ever said that it was easy. Uh, well, yes, I mean, obviously. Not everybody could get that loaded at once, or or the entire social group could become dinner for some Paleolithic predator. Um, I think, though, that it's at that higher dose level that you get this language-like activity, and probably that is such an uh, such an incredible uh, adaptive advantage that a few people being munched as they as they dreamed around the fire was probably something nature was able to put up with uh, anyway predators won't uh, uh, approach fire i mean maybe this is why people built fires at the mouths of caves and then all went inside so they could get loaded and not have to worry about anyone bothering them uh, but yes, you're right. The third stage is not as obvious in a Darwinian sense. To appreciate the evolutionary power of the third stage, I think you have to experience it. The other two, you can make a logical argument in the normal fashion that these arguments are made in evolutionary theory. But to appreciate the 
the power of the third stage, uh, you pretty much have to experience, and probably not too many primatologists have, uh, but I imagine those that have are the younger crowd. Uh, the nice thing about this particular paradigm is it doesn't m- have much competition. There isn't. This is really the central problem for evolutionary biology: is the origin of consciousness, and yet it, it isn't. Uh, there isn't progress. There aren't even factions. Some of you may have seen that series that was originally produced for Dutch TV that had Sheldrake and Dennett and all those people in it. And it was pretty clear that biology is out to lunch as far as quantum physics is concerned. It was recently shown in New York, but I think it was done over a year ago. It's a very long, 15 hours? Yeah. Yeah, Dennett's book, I don't recommend that you believe it or even take it seriously, but it's interesting reading to see how the radical materialist reductionists think. I'm talking about the book Consciousness Explained. It should be called Consciousness Explained Away. Uh, But in fact, nothing is explained. How we go from a chemical process, an electrical process, a neurophysiological process, to a thought is a complete mystery that that you know and there have been many different approaches they now using um, uh, cat scans and this sort of thing uh, present people with choices and watch different parts of the brain light up and this sort of thing but this is not thinking in the ordinary sense. This is tracking of behavioral uh, intent. It's a far cry from being able to tell whether someone is thinking about Heidegger or Hegel by looking at their CAT scan. I don't even know if that's in the works. Yeah, uh, maybe you could elaborate on a point that I, I think I missed somehow. Uh, the, the, the use of hallucinogens will... Uh, your, your theory is... Uh, caused a change in these people that, that caused our civilization to develop. Is this because it was a learning experience or because it actually modified their brain structure and that was passed on to their descendants? It changed their behavior yes. and that caused different selective pressures to work themselves out because the behavior of an animal is what exposes it to various forms of risk and that sort of thing and so when the behavior changed the nature of the of the collective genome and the way it was reacting to selective pressure changed and so it's an actual uh, it's suppressed genetic programming toward male dominance but did not modify it and it modified the, the the neocortex of the evolving primates in the direction of uh, more information processing generally and probably more image dedicated information. This this processing uh, well, if they've done experiments with rats that show that in in uh, dull environments, 
they have a much lower brain weight than in environments where they are presented with rich stimuli. And so uh, it's, it's clear that what psilocybin represented was an incredible enriching of social existence. I mean, it's the difference between ver- you know a, a group that never intoxicates itself, never dissolves social boundaries, and one that does, and then creates poetic flights of fancy, sexual excesses, so forth and so forth. Stimulated brain would pass on the further stimulated brains as an evolutionary change. Well, if the if the behaviors if the behaviors conferred adaptive advantage, and the this I thing. See, it, but your point, or you're you're in an area of an interesting point, which is uh, if we artificially um, enhance ourselves in some way, then evolution usually doesn't continue in that direction. And one puzzle is why do we have such bad eyes as a species? Um, diminished eyesight is a, a real problem uh, for human beings. And it may be because for a long time psilocybin was actually masking uh, degradative mutations uh, around the evolution of eyesight. So there's a lot that isn't clear in how all this worked. But I think it is clear that stimulation... Uh, increases brain size and then as to whether it is passed on or not that that depends on whether the behaviors that arise out of that are uh, uh, confer an adaptive advantage yeah yesterday <clears throat> you, you spoke about um, psilocybin as this is what I heard as a uh, as an entity, almost uh, 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 the, the mushroom having a consciousness of its own that spoke to you, and I'm wondering why you, why you think that rather than it being something that opened you up to that level of consciousness in yourself that is speaking to yourself. Well, I guess because other psychedelics don't do that. Even other psychedelics, which I would in a sense call stronger. Uh, for well, LSD is a good example. I mean, LSD will completely dissolve your boundaries and leave you in in some pretty unfamiliar territory. But it's very rare to have someone tell a story about uh, encountering an entity or a voice on pure LSD. Uh, ayahuasca which has all the trappings of a of a ancient aboriginal shamanic hallucinogen it doesn't speak in my experience i mean occasionally under some extreme situation it might say a word or two but um, it, what ayahuasca is is it's like the eye of a camera you just become this roving and scanning, disembodied, seeing thing. But psilocybin raves. It raves and raves and raves and raves and raves and raves. And you're just sitting there saying, uh-huh, mm-hmm, I see, right, got it, yes, uh-huh, 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 uh-huh. 
I mean, that's an extraordinary thing. Now, of course, a, a critic, a skeptic could say, well, it's just uh, activating a function in the psyche that you perceive as an other and it's talking to you. Well, I have no problem with that. I mean, I assume that when I talk to you, we're activating a structure in the psyche that I perceive as other and that it's talking to me. I mean, this kind of waving the magic wand of words to get rid of the phenomenon. Uh, and then people say, well, how do you know you're not talking to yourself? Well, the obvious answer is because I know myself. It's very hard for me to surprise me and yet this thing on psilocybin, surprise, 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 surprise. Just as if I were to have met someone in a bar of a foreign hotel who turns out to have a whole different history and life and a set of philosophies that they just want to pour into me in a long evening of raving conversation. It's much more like that. So... I've been through personally a lot of changes about the voice inside the mushroom, ranging from that it's that the mushroom is simply an extraterrestrial, that this is what a certain segment of society has been looking for, hoping for, and lo and behold, here it is. And they don't come in billion-ton beryllium ships handing out technological goodies and curing cancer. It doesn't work that way, I th apparently. And I still am not convinced. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if science at some point decided that the genetic sequencing of the mushroom showed it to be so substantially different from any other life form on the planet that it must have emerged in another ecosystem. Even if it is an extraterrestrial, it's probably been here older than, longer than we have, which raises the question, you know, who, who is the intruder? Uh, if it came from Zenebel Ganubi a hundred million years ago, it might still consider itself the primary uh, uh, intelligent entity on the planet. The trick with extraterrestrial intelligence, as I understand, or the limitation that plagues all the enthusiasts of flying saucers and secret bases and all that stuff, is that extraterrestrials are a lot weirder than we think. They are not the cheerful, bipedal, cat-eyed, uh, syringe-wielding aliens of Hollywood. Uh, the likelihood of that is as likely as an Italian restaurant in the Andromeda galaxy. To even suppose extraterrestrials are like that is to betray an incredible parochialism of mind. No, the key with extraterrestrials is to know one when it's in front of you. Because it, and a mushroom, if you think about it, is a, is a very interesting potential candidate. Because, um, well, for a number of reasons. First of all, mushrooms are what are called all fungi, or what are called primary decomposers. That means they live only on dead matter. It's the only karmaless position in the food chain. 
compared to the vegetarianism of Buddhists, it's a much more morally defensible position. I mean, vegetarianism, to those of us who know and love intelligent plants, looks just like a cannibalistic orgy of some sort. And you get no points for vegetarianism. Uh, but there is this one position in the food chain that is karma-free, and the fungi occupy it. Um, the other thing is, the way the mushroom reproduces itself is through spores. And these spores are on the, in the five angstrom range. They're small. And a single Strophariacudensis mushroom, a single mushroom, in the course of, of, of its life, will shed for about six weeks three million spores a minute. One mushroom. Well, the number of spores being released then into the terrestrial environment is in, is in the, you know, megazillions. And some of these spores actually are so small that they percolate out to the outer reaches of the atmosphere where Brownian motion and incoming cosmic radiation, so forth, uh, they actually sort of bubble off into space over very long periods of time. And, you know, it's a cliché that we all have within us material that was once in the heart of stars. You hear this all the time, that in the course of cosmic cycling, the atoms of your body once burned in the cores of distant stars. Well, if that's true then some small number of the atoms in your body didn't burn in the cores of distant stars, but were part of planets in orbit around those stars. And in other words, the universe is a churning and dynamic place. Over a million years, ten million years, it's no small matter for a small particulate uh, structure to, to percolate throughout a structure the size of the galaxy. Well, the galaxy has over six billion stars in it. And uh, so I think that one of the easiest predictions you can make that is like paradigm shattering and so forth and so on, and yet on the face of it, trivial, is the prediction that science will eventually reach the conclusion that space is no barrier to life. Some In some quarters, this conclusion has already been reached that viruses, spores, plasmoids, um, episomes, these small pieces of genetic material can in fact survive in outer space. And perhaps, you know, there's even a school of thought that holds that they don't survive in outer space. It's the best place for them that the warm pond theory of the origin of life is now under some attack. And the thought is that perhaps the earliest biological molecules arose in comets, in icy smush of methane and water in orbit around uh, uh, distant stars. Also, you know, further complicating the view of life and its origins, in the past 10 years, uh, these very deep hot springs on the floor of the Pacific Ocean have been discovered that uh, are 
uh, hydrogen sulfide vents that are under thousands of feet of water. No light ever reaches these places. And they are islands of biology at the bottom of the sea, a special form of biology that can use hydrogen sulfide energy cycles in place of photosynthesis. Uh, Well, this is pretty alien chemistry. Uh, Those things have never seen the light of the sun. The sun could go out and those colonies of life would persist for as long as these hydrogen sulfide vents continue to flow at the bottom of, uh, of the Pacific Ocean. Well, we know that the Jovian moon Europa is apparently nearly all water. It's entirely possible that there's hydrogen sulfide venting at the bottom of the, of the European Ocean, and so there could be life there. Um, we have, I'm still discussing the possibility that the mushroom is an extraterrestrial. We have been decoding DNA since 1950. And uh, it seems reasonable to suggest that any organism anywhere in the cosmos that called itself intelligent would proceed to intellectually elucidate its chemical basis. And once you understand your chemical foundation, you are within reach of altering your chemical, your physical structure. In other words, writing your own script. We don't have to be 145-pound monkeys. We could be anything we wanted if we could write the script of DNA. Well, when you look at the mushroom... Carmelous in the food chain, able to percolate through the galaxy without technology, filled with bizarre alien information, and utterly unobtrusive and humble in the way that it fits itself into the ecology. I mean, you want a house in Malibu. It wants a cow flop in a pasture. Uh, I'd call that humble. Uh, the fact that it has all these qualities and the fact that it's frantic to have a conversation suggests that it might just be an extraterrestrial. And I've always felt, you know, we have a kind of funny relationship to this idea of extraterrestrial because we want it to be on the cover of time. In other words, we want it to come down through the sanctioned machinery of truth-making of our society. We want Carl Sagan to interrupt Jeopardy, to announce that it's in fact true, you know. And then we would, or we want it to land in United Nations Plaza or something like that. The fact is, if it were to land in United Nations Plaza today, it would be no weirder than what has been going on for a long, long time. I mean, it's only that we don't take our own minds seriously that we can hold off the notion of the extraterrestrial. Apparently, it doesn't deal government to government. 
It doesn't come for a worldwide television hookup. It's, you know, in the confines of your bedroom after 3 a.m. on five grams of psilocybin with the phones unplugged. And then, you know, not coming from Alpha in Sagittarius, but just coming from out of the depths of your own imagination, it manifests and it's convincing. I cannot imagine a more convincing demonstration of alienness. Nothing could be more alien than these tryptamine places and entities. Uh, So this is a great frontier for exploration. And then if I don't take psilocybin for months, sort of the, the heat of the alienness of it sort of flows away. And I begin to think, well, I have a series of downloads as I pull away from the utterly alien explanation. And the first one is Gaian mind, that it is an entity but it's not alien, it's the planet, and it cares for me, and it cares for you, and it cares for the oceans and the forests, and so forth and so on. Then if further time passes, and I don't take the mushroom, I finally am able to struggle up on the beach of Jung Island, and there I convince myself it must just be, you know, that the human mind is haunted by the archetypes of the collective unconscious, that Amen Ra slides into Vishnu, who turns into Tekatslepokal, uh, or it's just, you know, but I don't really think that that is a sufficiently deep explanation. One of the things when I first started growing mushrooms and, and talking about them was I thought that we would be able to settle this extraterrestrial thing because I, too, have a measure of naivete. And I thought that psychologists, that there, somewhere there were people smarter than I was, maybe like in information theory or game theory, who would say, oh, well... If you're talking to someone and you want to know whether they're you or not, there's a series of trick questions that you can ask that will flush the issue into the into the light and they won't be able to hide. I've never been able to do that. I've never been able to construct a conversation so clever that I trapped it and said, that's it. You are a part of me. You aren't. You are only pretending to be an extraterrestrial. Um, but I again, if any of you are chess players or logicians, this is something to consider. There's a great science fiction story, twenty, thirty years old. I, I think it's called First Contact, which is all about the psychology of contact. Because when two intelligent species come together on equal terms, it's, it's an incredible enterprise filled with opportunity and risk, the biggest risk there is, the risk of, your, of, of species extinction. Because when you're out there among the stars and you encounter, and that was the situation, this crew from Earth, they encountered this ship And they realize, you know, this is a great cultural frontier, a great opportunity for mankind. But 
We don't know who's in this ship. We don't know their psychology, their philosophy, anything about them. So we must not give anything away in case they're not friendly. We must especially not give away our point of origin because then they could go there. And then this very interesting poker game is played between these two forms of intelligent life, each wanting something from the other, each with very important secrets that it must keep. Uh, and that's sort of the, the situation that you get into with these, uh, these entities, which you hear on, on psilocybin and which you see on DMT. You actually, at last, what has been a voice becomes a three-dimensional entity. I think of them as meme traders. They trade ideas. They want ideas and they have ideas to trade. Think of them sort of as like primitive art collectors. They've come here for because they love our primitivism and our naivete and the wonderful childishness of our physics and our... Uh, our biology, and so they they want ideas, and they will leave ideas. But again, their level of intelligence is very hard to hard to gauge because, well, for many reasons. I'm from Colorado, and uh, above nine thousand feet in the Colorado mountains, there's a kind that there's a kind of animal called a pack rat. And um, in the old gold towns of the California gold rush that were built at high altitude, when these towns were abandoned, uh, the pack rats moved in. And the interesting thing about pack rats is that they, they steal. They steal things, but they don't really steal because they always leave something. They're trader rats. And so there are many stories of people living in these high-altitude towns, like, for instance, trading 7-Up bottle caps for gold nuggets, which the pack rat some, at some time stole from someone and took to its nest. And people trading, uh, you know, dimes for diamond rings and this sort of thing. So it's a relationship like that that, as I told you yesterday, when you ask the mushroom to reveal its true essence, you can't stand it. You can't look upon it. It's too... It understands that it must come to you through a series of strong filters. And, of course, you don't relate to it that way. You're just the little monkey pleading for the vision. But it somehow knows that you can only stand a certain level of weirdness and then fear will lock in. Um, and thanks God for it. Because, uh, you know, otherwise you don't want to be like one of these characters in an H.P. Lovecraft story who just sits in a locked ward somewhere going wibble, wibble, wibble because you looked over the edge and the thing was not veiled and you saw too much. It's a kind of romantic notion, but I think it can happen. Yeah. Um, we were talking earlier about how um, 
psilocybin speaks to you and ayahuasca didn't in that example. I had a conversation last night with somebody who um, was talking to me about ayahuasca and that there had definitely been a verbal communication, very clear and extended. And I'm wondering if, because I assume that you've heard a lot of stories, do you think that people have slight differences in their brain chemistry that makes them react to different drugs differently? And specifically, do you think there's any gender difference in the way people react to particular drugs? Well, yeah. I mean, yes and yes and yes. There is nothing more variable in human beings than our, than our reactions to drugs. Years ago, I took a course from, from uh, Sasha Shulgin at Cal. It was actually in forensics, believe it or not. And the, the name of the course was the, Biochem- the Biochemical Basis of Individuality. And part of it was all about getting sperm samples from rape victims and this sort of thing, because the biochemical basis of individuality is a way of tracing people who commit crimes. But in the course of studying this, a lot of information has been uh, built up. Uh, at one point in the class, we passed around a little vial that had a, some kind of chemical in it. You were asked to open it and smell it. And in a class of 600 people, um, maybe five or six people reacted very, very dramatically to this stuff and said it was the most horrible thing they'd ever smelled. Uh, everybody else smelled nothing. This is a gene, that a, a marker gene for this sensitivity to this thing. Children metabol- uh, metabolize drugs backward. If you have a hyperactive child, uh, in the past they were given amphetamine. Why? To slow them down. Children metabolize drugs backward. Um, exactly why this happens isn't well known. Uh, so, yes, nothing is more shifting than the chemical regime of your body. Uh, you know, what you ate for breakfast, when you had sex last, prescription drugs that you might be taking, uh, uh, substances in the environment that have triggered your immune system at a subconscious level. You don't even know that new antibodies are being made in response to this stimulus in the environment. So, and then as far as gender difference, surely this must be so, because gender difference is largely regulated by hormones, and hormones are interestingly close in chemical structure to neurotransmitters, and in some cases even doing double duty. So, yes, it's not only that we are different from each other and that men and women are different from each other, it's that you are different from who you were a week ago and who you will be in a week. Part of the great fun of taking psychedelics is that there's no such thing as uh, a certain good trip. You never know. You never, ever know really what you're going to get. I mean, you can become experienced, but that first throw of the dice 
is highly uncertain. So what people have to do who are interested in these things is there, I think that there needs to be a preliminary period of, of exploration with guides and with, and in an informed environment. In other words, there are books and journals and papers that you should read. And this is how I did it. I mean, I started out basically taking everything, but paying attention. And certain things I found I just didn't like. They made me uncomfortable. They seemed... I just had an aversion to them. And they had an aversion to me. I'm thinking specifically, and this is... I think most people share my opinion in this matter, but not all. And that is that these tropanes, these solanaceous drugs, you know, they will mess with you, but good. Hallucinations, delusions, illusions, visions, on and on and on. And yet, we don't even, in this drug freaked out society of ours, we don't even bother to make them illegal because it's so generally felt that this is more like being poisoned than like tripping. And yet, whole civilizations have built themselves around this kind of experience. Uh, In the um, Southern California, the Southern California Indians, the Catalina and Luiseno Indians, had this religion called the Tolash religion that was based around jimson weed, which is a source of this stuff. And uh, I can tell you interesting drug stories about people taking these things, but it doesn't cause me to want to take them. I can tell you interesting stories about me taking them that don't make me want to take them. Uh, Some people love LSD, I, I'm not really that fond of it. I found it hard-edged and psychoanalytical and not in often not integrative. I would often come down from acid trips with the only thing I had learned was that I wasn't sure I ever wanted to do that again, you know? Um, but, but I have friends who swear by it. So you you have to explore these things and find what works. And I I don't think it's the per, the people who say you know I've taken everything I've taken everything with everything else and so forth and so on. That that isn't the essence of sophistication. The essence of sophistication is is high doses on the things which work for you. And believe me. You know, I, I've taken most of these drugs at high and low doses. And no matter how weird you think your last trip was, there's something out there that will shrink it to insignificance because it just seems to get weirder and weirder and weirder and weirder and weirder. There's no limit to it. The further in you go, the bigger it gets. I have a friend who says of psilocybin, Every time I take it, I try to stand more. I try to stand more. Well, that's an attitude that says that it's never really comfortable because as soon as it feels comfortable, he asks it to lift one more veil. 
and then he's immediately uncomfortable with it because new dimensions uh, uh, come into it. Yeah. Um, you said earlier that with DMT you can see the entities that you hear with psilocybin. And I'm wondering if there's enough of a chemical similarity to postulate that you know they come from the same extraterrestrial origin. You know, how does that fit in together? Well, it sort of fits and it sort of doesn't. Um, to my mind, the the really interesting family of chemicals, I mean, you know, there are all kinds of tranks and speed and tropanes and deliriants and what do they call them? The uh, the uh, the things like ketamine, the uh, dissociative anesthetics. Thank you. All of these things. What I'm interested in are the tri- the tryptamines, especially, and the indoles. The indoles are the larger class. But it's still, out of the millions of compounds that drive the engine of nature, the indoles are LSD, the beta-carbolines, harmine, harmaline, tetrahydroharman, and their relatives, ibogaine, which we haven't talked about, uh, psilocybin and DMT. Now, the only major hallucinogen that is not an indole is mescaline. And uh, mescaline has enthusiastic adherence. I'm not fond of it because as a drug, the profile is not good. A a full dose of mescaline for a 145-pound human being is 700 milligrams. That's too much. That's too much. It's a crude drug, to put it crudely. Uh, Because one way of thinking about the toxicity of drugs is the less you have to take, the better it is. That's why LSD, by that measure, is the winner going away. If it takes 700 milligrams of mescaline to get one person off, 700 milligrams of LSD will get off 1,400 people. So that's the differential between those two. Uh, Psilocybin is in the middle range there. It takes uh, 10 times as much psilocybin or 100 times as much psilocybin as LSD, but one-tenth as much psilocybin as it it does uh, mescaline. I, when I first started experiencing DMT and psilocybin, I, like you, assumed that they must be, it's coming from a similar place. It's coming from a similar place, but it's not coming from exactly the same place. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. I hope that you listened closely to Terence when he said that regarding a psychedelic experience that you never know what's going to happen. (laughs) I know that the old-timers here understand that quite well, but if you are new to this community, it will probably do you well to pay attention to that statement. The only way to become an elder around here is to always, as in always, treat these substances with great respect. Just be careful out there, okay? Also, uh, you remember when Terence was asked the question about there possibly being voices to be heard while under the influence of ayahuasca as well as mushrooms? 
Well, I remember it because I planned on mentioning that myself. Uh, I, for one, actually do hear a voice loud and clear while having an ayahuasca experience. So I was pleased that he was asked the question, but (laughs) I'm going to have to go back and re-listen because I don't remember him actually answering that question. Maybe he did. I just might have been drifting around a little bit. Actually, I have to admit that my mind did wander a little while I was listening to this talk with you just now. I guess that I planted the seed of an idea in my head when I was talking about carrying a copy of my novel with you if you were traveling this summer. What I was thinking about is how drastically something like a little trip at the end of the summer can change one's life. At least if you let it, because, uh, well, that's what happened to me. The town I was living in during my high school years was basically a farm community. There were uh, less than 10,000 people living there, and during the winter it was really dull. But due to the fact that it was, at the time, the Midwest Center for the Del Monte Canning Company and for Continental Can, well, both of their factories there meant that the uh, summer work for teens or anyone in their early 20s was uh, as much as you wanted during the summer. In fact, almost everybody that I knew worked in one of those factories uh, or else out on the farms that were sending peas, corn, and asparagus into into our town for canning. Now, most of us worked 10-hour days, seven days a week, and so our work and play became intermingled. Uh, Getting off at midnight was the best because uh, we could go out and drink without much worry about being caught because (laughs) we were underage, but the cops were in bed. But one night, late in the summer of 1961, A friend of mine suggested that we take his car and drive to Mexico at the end of the summer. So, uh, long story short, at the end of August, we got into his 1952 Studebaker with its uh, four recap snow tires and uh, headed first to New Orleans, where we were uh, quite shocked when we saw the segregated restrooms, uh, segregated drinking fountains, and segregated streetcars. You know, for a couple of small-town Midwestern boys, it was a real eye-opener. From there, uh, we went on to Houston, where we visited with a friend of mine who was uh, the head sailing instructor at Houston Yacht Club. And there I met his assistant, who the following summer hired me as an assistant. And for the next three summers, I had the greatest job a college student could have. Not only did I get to spend my summer sailing, I was getting paid even more than my father was earning at the time. Anyway, back to our little summer trip. From Houston, we made it all the way to Mexico City and then back to the Chicago area. We went through almost four cases of engine oil, but the tires, uh, well, they made it almost all the way back. Our single blowout took place about 50 miles from home. Now, why am I wasting your time with this story, you ask? Well, I remember at the time my friend and I took off that most of our friends and family were still trying to talk us out of it because, uh, oh, because of all the things that could go wrong, I guess. However, nothing went wrong. It was just the opposite, and as a result of my visit in Houston and the summer job that it led to, I wound up sailing in a wooden square rig sailing ship across the Pacific and uh, then on to working as a stuntman in the movie that the ship was being used in. And that trip and the summer on the movie set on the beach in Hawaii was perhaps the most fun I ever had in a single stretch. However, all good things must come to an end, they say, and uh, the draft was chasing me. So I had to leave my great adventure long before I really wanted to. And, uh, well, 24 months later, I found myself sitting in a gun turret on a destroyer off the coast of Vietnam and launching five-inch shells at people with whom I had no quarrel. Now, if you're wondering why so many vets, not just Vietnam vets, but essentially anyone who was in combat can sometimes be a little screwed up, well, that's why. 
Nothing can quite prepare one for a swift change from paradise to war. But that's not my point. My uh, point is that, as you've heard Terrence McKenna say on several occasions, travel is the next best thing to a psychedelic drug when it comes to dissolving barriers. Now, what isn't mentioned, but is equally important, is that once those barriers are gone, you're open to all kinds of new experiences coming your way. That little trip that uh, we whipped up during a late-night conversation turned out to be a life-changing experience for me, uh, when I think of all that it led to at least. Had we not stopped in Houston on our way to Mexico, I most likely wouldn't have been offered the job the following summer. And that job led not just to the chance to sail in a large wooden ship, but it also led me to law school at the University of Houston, where I met the mother of my children. That little side trip actually changed my life. Now, my friend, who had the Studebaker that we drove, didn't seem to get as much out of it. In June of 2010, I went back to our little town for our 50th high school reunion. My friend had been our senior class president, and I was the vice president, so I was really looking forward to seeing him, uh, because he'd never actually left that little town and still lived in a farm on the edge of town. Over half of our class showed up for that reunion, but he didn't make it. He had to get up early to feed his cows, I was told. The moral of the story, I guess, is that a summer trip can make a lasting impact on your life. So even if you have to stretch a bit, and even if you have to put up with people telling you to work all summer and save every penny, well, my advice is to ignore them. Instead, head to wherever your dreams take you. It can change your life if you let it. You have to let it, though. And if you're carrying a copy of the Genesis Generation with you, (laughs) who knows? You may find some of the others out there on the trail with you. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be careful out there, my friends.